In this episode, Islam on the Edges travels to a traditional edge of the Muslim and Arab worlds, Morocco. Often overlooked in the study of Islam and Islamic thought, Moroccans see themselves as part of the larger Arab Islamic world and consciousness. Due to its rich Islamic traditions and the encounter with the European colonizers and thought, the Moroccans have developed a strand of Islamic thought that is both thought-provoking and innovative. Greetings, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the episode four of Islam on the Edges podcast, where we talk about the contemporary Islamic thought in Morocco. In the first part of this podcast, Dr. Mohamed Hashas talks about the emergence of modern and contemporary Islamic thought in Morocco throughout the 20th century. He does so by looking at both the Arab and the Berber Amazigh Muslim authors, such as Al-Mukhtar As-Susi, who died in 1963, and his 20-volume encyclopedic work, Al-Masul. Then he talks about Alal al-Fasi, who died in 1974, and about the contemporary Moroccan writer, Taha Abdurrahman. In the second part of the podcast, Dr. Maryam al-Haythami focuses on Muslim feminism in Morocco by highlighting various schools of feminism, secular feminism, which is nevertheless inspired by religion, Muslim feminism, and Islamist feminism. Dr. Al-Haythami talks about the legacy of Fatima Marnisi, who died in, in 2015, and also about the work of Esma al-Murabit, who is a contemporary author. She also talks about female piety in Morocco. I hope you will enjoy this episode. My first guest is Dr. Mohamed Hashas. Welcome, Mohamed. Thanks a lot, Ermin. Uh, it's a great program, and I'm very pleased to be in. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. So as a means of introduction, uh, Dr. Mohamed Hashas is currently a research fellow affiliate to Leibniz Centrum Moderner Orient, ZMO, in Berlin. Germany and is a faculty member, adjunct faculty member at the Department of Political Science at Louis University of Rome in Italy, where he teaches Islam in Europe and from which he holds PhD in political theory. Dr. Hashas has previously taught also at the American University of Rome. So we are really grateful and honored to have you here with us uh, in our podcast, Dr. Hashas, and I will immediately jump into the conversation. So, um, we're talking here about uh, contemporary Moroccan Islamic thought primarily. So I would like to ask you, how does the Moroccan Islamic thought figure or relate to the larger Islamic thought? Well, uh, that's a great question to start with. Um, um, to give a perspective from within the tradition itself, the Moroccan uh, uh, intellectual tradition itself, well, Moroccans, as, um, and both as intellectuals and political establishment, um, do not see uh, actually themselves as um, on the margin or the far side of the Arab world, but they are not only part of the Arab or the part of the Islamic world. They are actually uh, part of its core formative period uh, tradition. And, 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 and there are um, at least uh, three, four major axes through which we can, we can uh, elaborate um, uh, on this. 
so it's uh, the identity of Morocco and Moroccan thought, Moroccan Islamic thought in general, and Moroccan thought um, in general, I mean, and Moroccan Islamic thought in particular, uh, is is anchored in, in, in this Islamicity and Arabity. So it is the religion and the language that have shaped the Morocco we know today of the last maybe 15 centuries. Um, so um, by 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 that we can speak of three extensions of the of Morocco in within the Islamic um, uh, tradition and this so-called Islamic uh, uh, lens or Islamic world or, or the Islamic in Hudson's um, terms. Um, the geographic extension, which is closer to um, uh, uh, the, the 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 emerging space of um, of Islam, the Arab world, to to the West. So it's uh, the the Western edge of Islam, of the Arab Islam, or an Islam at large. It's uh, of course this geographic extension is political extension. So it is through that formative period of extension of religion that made and gave uh, a motive for the rise of a political entity in Morocco, which has its legitimacy to the, um, to, the, the, to the descendants, to the grandsons of the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, and that made the first dynasty. And the current dynasty is not the same, but it also has the same legitimacy and lineage. Uh, so uh, that makes of it um, uh, then uh, a, a politically uh, very linked to uh, the Arab and the Islamic um, tradition. And then by at large, it's the intellectual tradition, which is the consequence of this geographic political extension. I don't know how far we can, st uh, we, can uh, we can talk on this, but I can say that um, um, the um, uh, intellectually, um, the Moroccan tradition um, has contributed to the Islamic tradition on some major Islamic, so-called Islamic sciences, uh, on language, the Arabic language itself, on hadith and jurisprudence, the seerah uh, and, and, and jurisprudence, and maqasid the sharia, and on Sufism, uh, and, and, and later on all, all the intellectual tradition itself and historiography. But these are uh, one of the major um, traditions that uh, Moroccan intellectual scholarship has contributed to insofar as uh, the Islamic tradition is concerned. And there is little tradition in, in, in what concerns tafsir. And that's for scholars also to, to, to talk about. And we can talk about it also later on. Um, uh, and this um, in, uh, tradition boasts itself on one at least major institution. It is Al-Qarawiyin University. It boasts itself with the UNESCO's recognition as the oldest functioning and running university in the world. And from uh, 859 AD, built or reconstructed by um, uh, the woman, Fatima al-Fihriya. Uh, so which precedes uh, even Al-Azhar University, which came nearly a century uh, later, and or Bologna, which came to um, centuries uh, later on. And the rest of uh, other colleges, but all are linked to Al-Qarawiyin, which is an international hub until now for Islamic scholarship. 
Thank you so much. I think this is so important because when we're talking about Islam on the edges, we're talking about recentering our understanding of Islam by bringing into conversation all the many centers that uh, Muslims have had in the past. And you rightly say that Morocco should be considered at the center of uh, the Arabic Islamic thought, but it often by the outsiders is not viewed that way. As you know, there is a lot of emphasis on Egypt and Cairo and Al-Azhar. Uh, more recently on Saudi Arabia with the rise of Salafism and so on. Uh, and oftentimes the uh, Al-Maghrib al-Arabi, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the West most uh, part of the, of the Arab world, if you could put it that way, are overlooked. So I'm glad you're recentering that. Now, your answers uh, lead me to the, uh, to the next question. And, and it is that, and it's probably the extension of what you just talked about, what is it that makes Moroccan Islamic thought Moroccan? What are its distinguishing features? Uh, yes, um, this builds actually on the previous note, and thanks again that you, you raised it. Uh, that uh, and that goes to, uh, with my point that Morocco doesn't see itself as part of the Islamic world, but maybe major contributor to Islamic uh, learning uh, because of the the traditional Al Qarawiyin, and until now also with the. Um, uh, activism of the, the, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, um, there are uh, higher institutions that are built for the training for, of imams, and there is an exportation of that tradition to, to Europe and, 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 uh, and Africa, etc. Uh, so there is, um, that, there is that use of the tradition uh, so much. What, makes, uh, what are the major features um, of this um, Moroccan tradition? Well, um, there is this uh, a trilogy that, is, that comes often in, in the way Moroccan uh, dominant uh, schools define themselves. It's their uh, adherence of, uh, um, to the Ash'ari theology, Sunni Ash'ari theology, uh, which is dominant in the Sunni world. And then it is the Maliki fiqh. Uh, so uh, it's uh, the Maliki fiqh or Maliki Madhab as the the, the doctrine or the legal doctrine that has shaped the tradition in Morocco. Uh, um, we didn't say, maybe we'll say later on, uh, that this is the, 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 the madhab in all North Africa and it was the madhab of Muslim Spain for about eight centuries mostly. And it's the madhab of other uh, sub-Saharan African countries with which Morocco has historic relations uh, in the past um, and in the present. Uh, and then there is the, Su the Sufi orientation in, in Moroccan uh, religious tradition, which is emphasized also politically in, 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 the, in the constitution of the country. So these are uh, the, the major aspects, um, uh, intellectual aspects that uh, have shaped the, the, the religiosity, intellectual religion uh, of the country, I would say. Yeah, and I'm always struck in the way in which, especially among the Sunni Muslims, it is often um, defined that way. You have the belief system or the aqidah, and then you have the jurisprudence, fiqh school or madhab, and then you have a corresponding uh, school of Sufism or, you know, for lack of better words, spirituality and whatnot. So oftentimes when I talk to Indonesian Muslims, they would say we are Ash'ari, Shafi'i, and then we have some Ghazalian Sufism. In Bosnia, people would say we are Maturidi, Hanafi, and then Naqshbandi or something something else. 
And so it's really interesting how across the Sunni uh, Muslim world, that understanding of combination of belief, jurisprudence, and spirituality is combined in what came to be known as dominating and defining feature of Sunnism. And it seems to me that Morocco is very similar in that way too. Um, it is, it is. And, you know, if you take the, if I take the example of the, um, the emphasis on the Maliki Madhab, um, because uh, the Moroccans being geographically, geographically a little bit far from the Gulf or the heartlands of Islam in the beginnings, they want to stick to a tradition that is close or faithful to the prophetic tradition. And what is, yes. which one is that? It's the Maliki uh, Madhab, which is based on the, the experience of Malik who lived in Medina, etc. So it's, uh, um, it resonates. And then uh, the, 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 inter the emphasis on the Sufi orientation it's uh, because the Zawiyas, the Brotherhoods, um, have, have, have done a lot in the promulgation and dissemination of, of religiosity and piety in the country for, for centuries. Um, we talk about the brothers who, Brotherhoods here, so nobody mis, mis, <laughs> mistakes this for anything of else. Of course, yes. Yeah, I mean, the Sufi is not the political. <laughs> Some of them can be a kind of semi-political. They are often apolitical, but... Uh, they have, uh, yeah, their connections with the, with the political system uh, in different ways. Um, as to the Ash'ari theology, yes, I mean, um, uh, that has dominated, the, uh, that's a broad debate if we want to go into that, but that's a, a philosophical view of, of things, not only um, uh, ritualistic, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at... Philosophy and metaphysics and everything else, yes. obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, so... Um, I want to ask this question, and um, to what extent is Moroccan Islamic thought predicated upon it being situated within a monarchy or a specific political system? Or if I could ask it a different way, are there any limitations imposed on Moroccan Islamic thought because it is situated within a monarchy? Oh, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's another uh, uh, not easy question. It's an important question. <clears throat> There is no need uh, to say uh, uh, that the monarchy uh, and its um, the legitimacy, its use of religion as a legitimacy for uh, for sovereignty, and its um, uh, predication on the fact that it has descendancy to the prophet's uh, um, uh, sons, uh, grandson Al Hassan, etc., has played an important role in maintaining and building. Uh, what's called, it's not nation state. There is a um, Moroccan state nationhood uh, in, in, in the terms of uh, the political scientist uh, uh, Stefan, Wilfred Stefan. Um, so there, it's, not something, it's not a nation state that is built in modern times after colonialism. There has always been a kind of esprit de corps within. Why? If we go back to history, uh, in, in that geography we know as Morocco now, it never went, it, it resisted being under any empire, be it Arab or whatever. It, mm -hmm. it, it, from the very beginning, they descended from the, um, uh, the Umayyads empire or dynasty, and they, they started building their own dynasty to become their own uh, empire. In the literature, Morocco was until uh, modern times uh, referred to as an empire. It was a regional empire because it extended under Mahad and the Moravids um, uh, all over North Africa and uh, to to um, to Spain and and uh, and South. So in that sense, it's 
and all that expansion was uh, religion was um, was used uh, in that. Um, uh, and uh, as to the question, um, th this uh, this um, this interpretation of geographic independence from original empires has been maintained and only was interrupted during the French and Spanish protectorate, modern, um, modern time, <laughs> for about 45, um, 43, 45 um, uh, years. As to whether this impacts Islamic thought or not, uh, well, it depends, because if we look at the the present uh, um, uh, orientation in Islamic thought, you will see that there is that uh, aspect of critique of the sovereignty itself, even mm -hmm. though it's based on religion and lineage to prophetic tradition. For example, apart from the mainstream, which tries not to go into that, uh, uh, discussing the legitimacy, etc. It's taken for granted. That's the mainstream um, uh, orientation in, in the political spectrum in Morocco, not only the Islamists. Then within the Islamists, uh, there, for example, Al-Adl uh, al-Ihsan movement, uh, justice and spirituality or excellence movement uh, from the 1970s, uh, it has, it's very critical of the monarchy. Uh, and they uh, refer to the caliphate as a model, etc. So, and they work within. Uh, it's still not officially recognized as movement, but they have been present for the last fifty years or so, and they have uh, they have um, branches in all over Western Europe, more or less. So it's a well organized uh, spiritual movement, apolitical, but it engages in the political in the public debate uh, at the same time. So, uh, so this means that th there is that aspect of trying to go beyond what is there and to criticize when it is possible to criticize. And the same thing about um, Ahmed Rissouni, who is the international, uh, the president of the International Union of Muslim uh, Scholars, which was before uh, presided over uh, by uh, Yusuf Al-Qaradawi. Ahmed Rissouni yes. is an international figure, and he, in, the, in 2000, for example, he was... Uh, critical of the Mudawana family um, uh, family uh, change or reform, and Mustafa Ben Hamza, who works with uh, state institutions and has lectured in front of the king. In the 2000s, for example, when there is a need, he comes out as a critical figure. So I think I uh, there is that space of, uh, yeah, of liberty. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now I want to move from more general to, from general to more specific uh, questions. Uh, and I know this may be a broad question, but maybe try in a few minutes to give us an overview on this. And, and the question is, who are the major contemporary Moroccan Islamic thinkers and what are their major works? Okay, uh, that's, uh, there will be, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, we will need to select certain prominent figures, uh, though the list uh, might sure. be very long. We're going for the best of, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, uh, and you said it, you said we'll go to the contemporaries, but the contemporaries, they build on the moderns. Uh, so if we say Absolutely. for the last 150 years or so, the so-called Arab Islamic Renaissance, there are certain three, four figures that you need to mention quickly, then we can focus on the contemporaries. Please. Um, 
بوشعيب الدكالي محمد بن العربي العلوي and Mohammed bin al-Hassan al-Hajwi, al-Ta'alibi al-Fasi, and al-Mukhtar al-Susi. These are four major figures uh, in, in more or less contemporary. They, lived, they've, uh, they were born around 900s or late uh, 19th century, and they lived until the 1950s and 60s. And they are influential, and all the contemporary intellectual figures of religious and also non-religious affiliation, they refer to them as important um, uh, figures. I don't know if you want me to say a few words about these or we go to focus on the contemporaries. Maybe uh, Bushaid al-Dukali, uh, some of them, they didn't live um, a huge um, uh, library, uh, written production. Some of them, they, they were very influential, uh, but they, were, they based their, their work on, on, on memory. And only what is written about them is, yeah, by their dis disciples or students uh, later so, on. So through teaching and students, uh, they had most of their influence. Exactly. For example, Bushaib al-Dukali, uh, who died in 1937, he traveled a lot in the Middle East and in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. In, uh, and he, he, he gave lectures there. He gave lectures in Al-Azhar. He gave lectures in, in Al-Qa and Zaytuna in Tunis. Which, uh, which are the, one of the most prestigious or the most prestigious religious institutions in the Arab world, which means that he was of a high caliber uh, uh, of the time. And uh, he was also um, consultant to the kings in, in, in the country, etc. And he influenced the rise of so-called um, progressive Salafism. Of course, I know mm -hmm. that the word Salafism is, is now has a political negative connotation, but in Morocco at the time, it was the Renaissance movement, the reformist movement called uh, National Salafism. Or... So is this similar to the Abdul Rashid, early Rashid Reza Salafism? Exactly, exactly. Because he, tra okay. he traveled in the Middle East in that period and he, he lived that moment of uh, Abdus, etc. And he went back to Morocco because he lectured, etc. And he influenced the new generation of Moroccans. Uh, uh, the, the so-called new uh, reformist and major scholars. And for example, he influenced the second major figure, Muhammad bin al-Arabi al-Alawi, uh, who also didn't write, uh, but uh, there are uh, works on him, um, on their lectures and uh, etc. Uh, Al-Alawi was of Sufi orientation, but uh, when he met the, the, the master, his uh, Dukali, Bushaib Dukali, he changed. He was influenced by these ideas of a new uh, um, ideas of reforming, etc. That also uh, that started in in the Middle East, <clears throat> in Abdu, etc. And he became the 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 the, the major the second major figure after uh, after Dukali, and he influenced and he influenced the rest of. Uh, contemporary scholars like Muhammad bin Hassan al Wazdani, Alal al Fasi, and Mukhtar Susi. And these figures also are the ones that I would like to, to say a few things about, especially uh, uh, Al-Hassan Al-Hajwi. He, he wrote a lot on, on uh, uh, for example, he wrote Al-Fikr Sami in 1927, uh, where he speaks about uh, the history of uh, Islamic sciences and tries to put them in categories, etc. So it's an encyclopedic work. And he has other works on the education of women, and he wrote on his... Uh, 
on the work of العروه الوثقه او جمال الدين الافغاني and محمد عبدو kind of synthesis etc then السوسي مختار السوسي is one of the, 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 the brilliant ones and he's done marvelous work which is unfortunately understudied and the, the, you know that Morocco is not understudied from that perspective is, is very uh, clear in the literature. There are a number of books now, but most of them are on politics, history of Morocco, political history, etc., but not on thought. Mukhtar Susi is from Sus, so the, the, the Berber area up so in the very south. Um, he wrote, for example, a 20 volumes called Al Masul. The Hanid, if I can translate it. What does he do in these 20 volumes? He writes the history and biographies uh, of influential people in the whole region of the south of Morocco, in the Sus in particular. He writes uh, their intellectual tradition, their, their, their lineage, and he writes also on, 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 on uh, religious schools and their graduates when they were founded, etc. So and, and so he's an anthropologist and historian in that sense. Marvelous work and it should be studied. He wrote also on Sus from a yeah, wrote on the schools. Besides these 20 volumes, he wrote other uh, wonderful, wonderful texts. And he says that people, scholars, should there should write their own autobiographies uh, so that uh, their experiences are transmitted well to the future generations. Um, yeah, then there is another figure, Abdullah Gnoun, who died in 1989, but he was born around 1908. Uh, he wrote another text that's called, in three volumes, Al-Nubur al-Maghribi, which is a famous text. Al-Nubur al-Maghribi is a reply to the Mashriqi, or uh, a kind of neglect of the Moroccan tradition. In the encyclopedias uh, that are written by, for example, uh, Ahmed Amin or many other Egyptian encyclopedic minds about the history of intellectual history of Islam or the Arab world, they don't emphasize the traditions in, in, in the Maghreb and Morocco in particular. And Morocco, again, uh, we, I didn't emphasize it in the beginning, but I just mentioned it in passing, uh, it considers itself an heir to the Spanish Andalusian experience, which is a very rich tradition. Um, so Absolutely. all that is criticized uh, by uh, Abdullah Gnoud because he, he wrote this Al-Nubur al-Maghribi to show that the Moroccans have been brilliant in, 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 in all major Arab Islamic sciences, etc. as a reply to this uh, scarce um, attention uh, paid to them by other Mashriqi or, or Levantine scholars or in that sense also Europeans who focus on, them, on the Levantine. Yeah, so so I think this sort of brings us to a more contemporary, and I know you've written extensively about Taha Abdurrahman, and uh, I think many of the thinkers that you've just mentioned connect in some ways to his thought. And in the in the last few years, we've seen not only you but also Wael Halak and many others have written on him. So why is he so important, and what is the gist of his ideas, if you if you could put it that way? Yeah, I, I'll rob a few seconds just to mention another major figure, then I'll move to Ta'a Abdurrahman, because also Ta'a Abdurrahman was influenced by this figure. It's Alal al-Fasi. He's, of course. Uh, you know, however important he has been in Moroccan intellectual history and politics, from the 19 late 20s, he is graduate of Al-Qarawiyin, of Fasi Arab family, and he has been active in the field until 1974. And he is the founder, or considered one of the founding 
fathers of the national movement. Uh, he, he played an important role in the formation and of the Ministry of uh, Religious Affairs of Rabita uh, uh, of the um, uh, of religious institutions in the country. Um, Dar al Hadith al Hassan Yaimin in 1964. He he whispered the idea to King Hassan II, etc. He was a prolific writer besides his being a political active uh, leader. He was also active in the, the, the whole Arab and Islamic world. He was defender of the Palestinian cause worldwide. Uh, and he was presenting, defending the Palestinian cause uh, when he died in 1974 in Romania, in Bucharest, when he, uh, in a visit to speak of that, uh, beside the Moroccan uh, Western Sahara issue. <clears throat> Um, yes. uh, Alal al-Fasi, he wrote, for example, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to that maybe later on uh, with detail, but he, he influenced a number of uh, contemporary scholars. Then I go back to your, uh, to your question uh, of Taha Abdurrahman, uh, his importance. Taha Abdurrahman stands, stands as a unique figure, and uh, I've been reading him actually since my early university years in Morocco, since around 2004. Then I, 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 I put him aside for a little bit. Then uh, later on, when reading more extensively about Islamic contemporary and modern Islamic thought, uh, I realized that how unique, how more unique he, he, he is. And in that sense that I came to also know about the work of uh, Wael Halak later on around 2013 and his interest uh, in him. Um, but I, I started using... Uh, uh, Taha Abdurrahman in my work on, on European Islam. Why is Taha Abdurrahman important? Uh, um, first, uh, he, he tries to give uh, uh, another uh, modern push to the revival of the tradition of philosophy in Arabic. So his Arabic and the way he, he philosophizes is, uh, is, is very attractive, very interesting, very rich, which you don't see often in other scholars. Of course, I'm not saying that uh, or each uh, scholar has his own way of doing it, but he, he theorizes. He doesn't do only history of ideas, but he goes into uh, an idea and gives, um, he has a way of, a unique way of argumentation. He, because he's trained as a, as a logician, trained in Morocco, then in France and went back. Um, and he, he, his major work is to say that the Islamic message is an ethicist message. It's moral uh, message, and that makes of it uh, the uni its universality is based on that. The other uh, important element in his work is that he is critical, more, more or less, of every, everyone, apart from few figures that are that stand high in his tradition. For example, in his work, like Al Ghazali and uh, and and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, and also Ibn Khaldun, though he doesn't mention him, but he, he is. So, and of course, uh, the Maqasidi uh, tradition of Ashatidi and uh, etc. So he, he belongs to this uh, um, tradition. He's very cri critical of uh, the Averwists and the, the Jabiri scholars, um, the Jabirists uh, or the Averwist scholars in the Arab world or in North Africa or in Morocco. You know, there is the whole debate uh, if whether Averwis, uh, if we revive Averwis, uh, we, we, we revive Arab and Islamic philosophy, but he says no. This is not the point. He he is he's uh, critical of the other ways. 
Um, he has. Um, do you want me to mention something about his work now, or maybe we can? Uh, uh, I want to say something more. Um, well, I think especially he has this trusteeship paradigm that he talks about. Maybe you can mention what that is and why is it so important? Why why it figures in his thought the way it is? Yeah, you know, one other aspect of his work is that he always all his books they start with an epigraph, and this epigraph is Quranic verse, and he uses Quranic concepts, uh, uh, which he philosophizes, or he, they become concepts in his work. He never uses Quranic verses or uh, hadiths, prophetic words, in inside the text of argumentation. No, he, I see. He, yeah, he does that only in the epigraph or in footnotes, just to say where the concept comes from. So just, and this is his, one of his ways is to say that Arabic tradition has to be revived from its major source or major sources. And the Quran is one of its, from the Islamic tradition and not only Arab, uh, the Quran is a very inspiring text for, in, that, in that sense. As to trusteeship, it's from Al-Amana. It's, it's the, the message, the Quranic concept of Al-Amana that uh, it is uh, a covenant that human beings have taken from God at the moment of creation, and it is what they live with and where they should live for. And this is an ethical message par excellence. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's doing uh, the best you can uh, without... Well, uh, yeah, being utilitarian in that sense, simplifying. <clears throat> yeah, that reminds me of a Malaysian uh, Islamic thinker, uh, Sayyid Muhammad Naqib al-Attas, who also has a, a, in his books Islam and Secularism and Prolegomena to the Metaphysics of Islam. He also centers this idea of the mana or the covenant uh, paradigm of humans with God as the central part of the Islamic message as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I am aware of that, and I hope there could be an, an, an more in-depth studies of comparative in that sense. But the the point that Abdurrahman has done, and that's why I have used him in my work, is that he has built a whole ethical paradigm. It's it's an ethical school. There is in philosophy and. Uh, at, uh, and, and also among uh, some Arab and Islamic scholars that there is a lack of an ethical theory of Islam or modern ethical theory of Islam. But Tabd Rahman says, look, well, all Islam is an ethical theory. So what he does, what he does is that he builds this framework and he does that by basing his work on the tradition, on reading the moderns, seeing their limitations. The moderns, be they Arab and Muslim or be they Europeans. He, he engages with European and American philosophers, the most prominent ones, uh, from the early uh, modern period to the contemporaries. Uh, he's critical of, uh, of their work. He, try, you know, he engages. He does not criticize and passes, but he, 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 he does um, uh, very serious work of engagement, which a number of other scholars often don't do. They either quote and pass, but he struggles to say that where their points, where their philosophies, modern philosophies lead, while his philosophy, according to him, trusteeship philosophy or concept or theory, uh, is based on an Islamic, and it is for him a corrective of the pitfalls of modernity. That is why Wa'il Halla, for example, says yes, uh, entitles his book Reforming Modernity. 
it's because he worked on Abdul Rahman, the whole book is about Abdul Rahman. And Abdul Rahman aims at correcting modernity. So his project at the end starts Islamic in the sense of based on the Islamic tradition, but tries to be uh, to to respond to contemporary and modern philosophies and their and their uh, for him uh, pitfalls or shortcomings. Yeah. So he has written um, um, yeah a lot um, on that on that regard. And I think the wonderful yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, as we're running out of time, and I know we've just scratched the surface of this, and I hope that in maybe one of the future episodes, we can revisit this and go a little bit more in depth. Maybe as a matter of as a way of conclusion, uh, what are maybe two or three major works, if somebody wants to start learning about contemporary Moroccan Islamic thought, what are the few major works that one should read in order to familiarize herself or himself with that? Uh, well, uh, before I, I give some uh, some titles, <clears throat> there is a dire shortage, unacceptable uh, shortage, I would say, uh, of works on intellectual history in Morocco. And between brackets, allow me to use this platform that I am working on editing um, the first large volume on contemporary Moroccan thought, where uh, uh, in which um, there is a lot of uh, contributions on Moroccan. Con- contemporary philosophers, theologians, and also social scientists uh, uh, in, in the field. So it's... Uh, and I'm pleased to announce here that our center, Center for Islam in the Contemporary World at Shenandoah University will in some way contribute and support that work as well. Exactly, exactly. So, and I am very uh, thankful uh, uh, to that. So that will be the first book I will recommend because there isn't any book. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and it, it's great. I'm, I'm sure when it comes out, it's comprehensive in a way that it gives a number of different thinkers and it's a really good overview. So yeah. that probably is going to come out next year, I hope. Uh, yeah, it, it needs at least some 18 uh, months uh, of more work uh, from now. Um, it has taken um, a couple of years. Um, as to the works that I can recommend that are Islamically oriented, but that they are theo- they are theoretical, there is a lot of material in, in them. I can refer to Self-Criticism by Alal al-Fasi, which is in Arabic, An-Naqd al-Zati, an excellent work, published in 1954, but it was written a bit earlier, uh, some five years before in, in, when he was in Cairo. <clears throat> the second book, and I didn't refer to this figure, is the Dean of Moroccan Modern Philosophy. Is, uh, the text is uh, Muslim Personalism, written, uh, published in 1964 by Mohammed Aziz Lahbabi. He's the dean who opened the first department of philosophy in Morocco and influenced uh, the, the rest of the generations after him. Hey, among the people he influenced, is uh, Abdul Rahman. And Abdul Rahman also was influenced by Alal al-Fasi because they are all within the objectives of Sharia and moral tradition of, of Islam and and, and, and then Abdul Rahman goes, uh, belongs to this tradition. And then the third text uh, is The Spirit of Religion by Abdul Rahman himself. It's a thick book uh, in which he tries to give what religion is about, and tries also grapples with political Islam. He criticizes political Islam, both in the Sunni and Shia tradition, and he says that they have become so political and they have left the moral message, etc. So these are, uh, if I can recommend contemporaries, these are three major texts 
they are not history of ideas they are theoretical texts themselves thank you so much and i would just like to mention here that of course there is a strong tradition of muslim female scholars in morocco as well but our second part of the podcast is going to be dedicated to that and i know that you also partly wanted to talk about it but uh we decided that we should leave that to to our next guest so lest anyone thinks that we we forgot about that we didn't it was a conscious choice because we wanted to dedicate half of this podcast to, to especially to that particular thing yes go ahead yeah um yeah if you allow me um uh, i think I belong to uh, a tradition within the Islamic thought and Arab thought in which male scholars also talk about female issues. So I hope yes. that not only females should talk about female issues. I and and I am here adopting the view of Fatima Marisi, a leading Moroccan feminist, and and, and for some is uh, the, the 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 yeah the mother of contemporary Islamic feminism, so-called Islamic feminism, who, who says that. Feminist issues or female issues are not the issue of women alone. They are the issue of males and females. And, uh, and so I, it's a topic that I, I'm interested in, but uh, I should not say uh, much for now. I thank you for the occasion. Thanks a lot. Of course. Thank you so much, Dr. Mohammed. This was a wonderful, invigorating conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to us talking again. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Ermin. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Mohamed Hashas. My next guest is Dr. Mariam Al-Haythami. Mariam, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. You're most welcome. Uh, Dr. Mariam Al-Haythami is an assistant professor specializing in gender and religion at the International University of Rabat in Morocco. Uh, and she is also the Morocco-based principal investigator for a four-year multi-institutional project entitled Gender, Politics, and Critique in the Middle East and North Africa towards a critical history of feminism, 1970s until today, which is funded by the Swiss Program for International Research. She holds a jointly supervised PhD in cultural studies from the Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah University in Fes and Sunni Binghamton in New York State. Her research explores trends of Islamic feminism in post-2003 Morocco, gender perspectives in preventing and countering violent extremism, and the role of women in state religious policy and Islamic scholarship. She has been awarded numerous research fellowships, including the American Academy of Religion Award and the Global Religion Research Initiative, to pursue research on Morocco's de-radicalization processes, as well as the reshaping of urban subjectivities through the reinvention of Sufism in Morocco. So, Maria, once again, uh, welcome. And uh, I'm going to launch into our conversation by asking you, why do you think Morocco emerged as an important site and thought center for Muslim feminism? Well, um, of course, uh, similar to other countries in the region, the quote-unquote woman question is, of course, shaped by the confluence of different sociocultural and um, historical trajectories and the ways that different sociocultural and historical conditions morph into sources of authority that shape the discourse around women's empowerment and their experiences. So, of course, we can talk about religion. We can talk about the tradition, modernity, nexus, patriarchy, the monarchy, and so on. 
So Morocco, for example, is marked by an interesting combination of traditional religious identity and political liberalization. So a traditional religious identity in the sense that there is a certain collective imagining of religion and political liberalization in the, the sense that there's been um, an expanded space for public expression, especially after um, the um, 2011 events. So that interplay of both paradigms creates a space for complex expression and negotiation of rights and expanded visibility in the public space, but also reveals an interesting dynamic of state patriarchy or neo-patriarchy as figures in other scholarship that bridges traditional religious system with modern demands and um, where the state becomes an advocate of women's rights and sociopolitical reform. So in this process, if we, for example, mention the monarchy in particular, of course, in Morocco, we have a monarchy where the king combines both religious and political authority, religious and authority in the sense that he's not a religious um, scholar or issues fatwa, but his religious authority is channeled through structures of official Islam. So the monarchy plays a particularly important role as it functions as an arbiter that ensures political liberalization while maintaining social cohesion through a homogeneous practice of Islam. So when it comes to women's rights, for example, the um, monarchy has since independence advocated women's rights and subsequently constructed a state feminism that is understood as the government's strategy to um, introduce top-down programs that promote women's rights and uh, gender equality. So the king himself um, proclaims his role as the defender of women's rights and the catalyst in the um, implementation of political and social change and um, promotion of gender equality through institutional mechanisms. So this, of course, creates an interesting paradox that sometimes puts into question the legitimacy of the feminist project and um, its ability to operate independently um, from the state. That said, this intricate interplay between the politics of religion, gender, and um, the rhetoric of political liberalization in Morocco allows an exploration of the epistemological contours of contemporary expressions of feminism, gender critique, as well as the narratives and trajectories of these female activists who construct new modes of empowerment and um, feminist consciousness, although it may be operating from within male-dominated or state structures. And of course, um, these um, new forms of engagement become a defining component in the structure of civil society. Additionally, and what I think is also an interesting point on why Morocco figures as um, contem contemporarily in, in, as an interesting site is, um, is there's also the emerging counter-extremism discourse since 2003 that began to posit women's empowerment and gender equality as a counterbalance to Islamist ideologies, which represents a discursive and a um, structural shift. So women are no longer just praised for being the protectors of the family unit and the traditions 
but as protectors of social cohesion and um, political stability of the country against um, religious fundamentalism. So, so I think that these um, that these emerging dynamics create space for uh, novel forms of expression, and um, that also present Morocco as an interesting case. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this sets well the stage for the rest of our conversation. I'm sure we're going to be going back to many of the points that you just raised. But I want to kind of rewind to the past a little bit. Of course, uh, when people talk about contemporary or modern Muslim feminism in general, not just in Morocco, uh, Fatima Mernissi comes as a obviously a pivotal figure in, in that particular history. So can you tell us uh, about the influence of her work today, but also about her intellectual influences? I mean, I think that she didn't emerge in a vacuum. So who were the uh, influencers in her, you know, on her own thought during her time when she was writing? Mm -hmm. So, of course, when we talk about the feminist consciousness in Morocco, we talk about a project or a movement that dates back to the mid-40s as part of the urban um, nationalistic movement, which was marked by more of a liberal outlook that advocated universal human rights discourses, while of course recognizing the importance of religion within society, as well as the importance of rereading religious texts in light of social changes and within the um, spirit of maqasid sharia, rather than the sharia itself. So earlier channels of feminism, of course, included journalistic writings, which circulated among the educated elite and was part of the wider context of the nationalist movement. And um, here I can, for example, mention um, Malika Fassi, who explicitly called for the education of girls in her journalistic writings. Um, we can also talk about legal rights, which were earlier on advocated by the first women's association in Morocco called the Akhawat Safa, translated as the Sisters of Purity, which was established in 1947. So it's kind of like a Quran Safa, but this is <laughs> a play on that name. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, so it emerged from the Independence Political Party and um, their demands were avant-gardist back then. So their demands included political participation, equality at home, the abolition of uh, polygamy. So their association also, which is very interesting, it also objected um, um, to the new family code back then, the first family code in 1957, by challenging the particular role of Islam and Islamic law in drafting the Mudawana, which was controversial back then. Um, so then we can also talk about post-independence academic, academic feminist scholarship, which um, reflected that strong demand for women's emancipation and rights and um, subsequently opened the debate around the role of religion in shaping legal debates on women's rights and uh, I can mention here um, the work of Leila Abu Zaid, um, Year of the Elephant, that addressed themes of family and divorce in light of the transition toward uh, post-colonial Morocco and the conflict between traditional culture and modernity. And it drew particular attention to the fact that although Moroccan women participated in the struggle for independence, they did not achieve any legal gains, hardly. So 
especially that the family code, the first family code was, um, was, was seen as a big disappointment. So, of course, Mernisi emerged um, within that trajectory as, of course, one of the pioneers of um, Islamic feminism, not just in Morocco, but in the region, because she was um, the first to engage with this new gender-sensitive Quranic interpretation. So she engaged the text directly by highlighting, of course, um, the fact that the access and interpretation of religious sources and texts is reserved um, for a political and um, religious elite that she calls the male elite. So so, um, so, in her book, for example, The Veil and the Male Elite, entitled The Veil and the Male Elite, a feminist interpretation of women's rights and um, in Islam, she discusses the inevitable enmeshment of politics and religion. Which, is, which has shaped um, the production of religious knowledge. So she emphasizes that religion is undermined by misinterpretation and also argues that knowledge production process um, is not infallible, but is a product of subjectivity. So, um, so Mernisi offers a feminist reading of Islam that highlights um, that demands for gender equality and social justice are inherent to Islam. And therefore, she suggests a reconstruction of what she refers to as the authentic message of Islam away from male elitist instrumentalization. So, of course, Mernisi set the ground um, for, um, for, for a feminist engagement um, with the text. And what is also particular about her work is that she contributed to blurring the classical dichotomy of secular feminism versus religion, the idea that feminism and um, religion cannot be reconciled. So, of course, although her works were um, controversial earlier on, but she really um, paved the way for, a, for an intellectual project that um, engages the text directly. Yeah, thank you. I think um, that's really a good reminder of that history and uh, the influence that that work had had not only in Morocco or North Africa, but also across the world. You did mention in, in the answer to the previous question, you mentioned El Mudawana. So I would like to take that. Can you tell us a little bit for just, you know, benefit of our listeners, what is El Mudawana and what is its impact and significance um, in, in Moroccan society, but also not just in the Moroccan society, uh, worldwide, globally, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, Mudawana is the Arabic translation of the family code. And, um, of course, again, since, um, since the inception of the Moroccan feminist movement in the mid-40s, the activism of the feminist movement really developed its thought and activism around the family code. So the family code or the Mudawana governs areas of um, family law, such as marriage, divorce, inheritance, and um, child custody, and um, was first introduced in 1957, right after Morocco's independence. And it back then represented a disappointment because it gave few rights to women. For example, men could engage in polygamy without their wife's consent, or could unilaterally divorce a wife. Women could not marry without legal approval from a guardian. 
and uh, married women were obliged by law to, ab to obey their husbands and their rights to divorce was really um, tightly restricted. So there's also the fact that the Mudawana was drafted by men, religious scholars, and was based on religious law meant that it gained a sacred nature and it wasn't really open to public discussion. So therefore, the first family code was seen as a betrayal to the feminist movement back then and really constituted a major struggle for the decades to follow. So we're talking from 1957 until really early 2000s. So as the feminist movement continued to um, lobby for expanded rights um, for women, minor changes, reforms were made in 1993. However, the real substantial reform was introduced in early 2000s with the coming of um, the new king back then, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad VI, who made it a case to advocate more rights for, uh, for women. So in 2004, the new Mudawana, um, or the personal status code um, reform was introduced after a consultation that brought together different groups. So now we can talk about different um, people sitting together to have the conversation, religious scholars, politicians, um, civil society actors, women NGOs, academics, and so on. So it promised several important rights for women, including the rights to self-guardianship, divorce, child custody, restrictions on polygamy, and raised the, um, the legal age of marriage from 15 to 18 and uh, made sexual harassment punishable by law. So the Numudowana, of course, is inspired by universal human rights, while, of course, maintaining um, religious law, especially the Maliki Madhab, as a source of ishtihad to deduce laws and percepts. So, um, of course, the, the new Mudawana was back then hailed as progressive, um, as one of the most progressive family codes in the region, especially um, in light of the overall context, because it was an, an interesting context. Um, how is it viewed today? Well, as we speak now, there is a demand for reform because um, there's been issues of implementation. There's serious issues of implementation. So as we speak now, there are demands of reconsidering um, the age of marriage, of um, having an open conversation about minor marriage, about, um, about custody issues, because although there's been a reform at that level, but the father remains the sole guardian of the child, which creates um, structural issues for many women. So there is another demand to reform um, the 2004 family code. So as I said, the wider context was also the 2003 Casablanca Attacks, attacks and the weakening of Islamist ideology, which presented Morocco as a country that champions both gender equality and um, religious reform. But as I said, there have been uh, several challenges, especially at the level of implementation, um, because the, the Mudawana was met by social change for several reasons. And it, it is still the case. The, there's a discrepancy of implementation between urban and rural spaces. There's the fact that many judges continue to resist until the present day, the implementation of certain laws, especially when it comes to minor marriage. 
There's also the cultural and patriarchal politics, the high illiteracy rates that may hinder um, proper implementation of um, those rights. And in addition to that, the Mudawana draws significantly on Islamic law and still raises questions about where the boundaries of Ishihad are, especially that the king himself acknowledged that um, he cannot forbid what is allowed and render allowed what is forbidden. So, for example, polygamy is not abolished. Inheritance is not addressed. Um, so, so this continues to raise questions about the role of institutional religion or the role that it should play in defining citizens' rights, as well as the prospects for secularization, which for the feminist movement does not necessarily predicate an exclusion of religion, but rather pushing the boundaries of Ishihad further. So um, thank you for giving us that history and explaining the relationship between the earlier work that many feminists, um, feminist scholars did in Morocco. Uh, and one name that emerged in the last maybe 10, 15 years is that of Dr. Asma Lamrabet. And uh, can you tell us more about her work and the impact that it's doing in, in Moroccan society? Yeah, so, um, of course, Asma uh, Lamrabat is, uh, is one of the um, significant figures of, um, of Islamic feminism. Currently, she's, of course, a Moroccan physician, a writer, and she was the former director of the Center for Studies on Women in Islam that is affiliated to the state-run religious institution, Rabita al-Muhammadiyah of Moroccan scholars. So what is particular about um, Asma Lamrabat's project is that she introduced a third way feminism that associates the ideals of Islam and human rights values in an effort to reconcile faith and modern um, demands. And it's, it's also a double critique to Western hegemony and traditionalist interpretations of Islam. So um, her work has paved the way for a new interpretive trajectory that seeks to center female-based narratives and um, subvert the exclusive male norms of interpretation. And, uh, and uh, one, of, one central argument to Ulam Rabat's work is that although the Quran is um, a divine revelation, its teachings are only experienced within a specific social and political context. Therefore, an unreading of patriarchal interpretations of the Quran is of critical importance. So for, uh, for Murabat, the um, dominant interpretations that privilege temporary regulations or um, those with specific social dimensions result in some form of undermining of the Quran's spiritual and universal message. Yeah. So, um, so how is her uh, work received today in the Moroccan society? So, um, so of, of course, there's um, there's there's also an interest in the context to that because um, in in 2018, Asma Lamrabat resigned from her position as a result of a backlash over her support um, for an equal share for women in, in inheritance, a demand that remains controversial in Morocco. So she called for revisiting the traditional text and um, understanding um, jurisdiction on inheritance and a lot of the change in social and economic dynamics, including women's work and their equal contribution 
to um, the, the creation of wealth, which, of course, um, created a social debate because the debate on inheritance in Morocco is still con- controversial, which is also reflective to the fact that Lomorovic's work remains an intellectual endeavor that does not necessarily receive grassroots support, which is an interesting idea when we talk about the prospects and possibilities for Islamic feminism. Um, because it's still a theological or intellectual project. It is also important to consider that her work is mainly popular among Francophone circles, which echoes the fact that the Islamic feminist project remains elitist and hasn't been able to garner legitimacy and compete with established conservative Islamic scholars who can easily dismiss these women's work as a secular approach rather than a serious hermeneutical practice. So, of course, as a consequence, um, these women's scholarship is not necessarily taken seriously by the larger population. I see. I was struck by what you just said. Remember earlier on, you mentioned how Fatima Mernissi, she criticized the male elites, right? Mm -hmm. And now you mentioned how the, uh, the feminist project is today seen by many as a secular feminist elite project. So in a way, uh, both of these projects uh, could be maybe critiqued for that type of approach. So where does that leave the wider society? Um, are there any civil society organizations picking up on this work? Are they adopting this? How is the wider society looking at this? Or are we just talking about two or maybe three types of elites just uh, talking among themselves and leaving out the great number of people outside that conversation? So your question is, uh, is is important in the sense that we also need to understand what is what do we mean by Islamic feminism in the context of Morocco. So both Fatima Mernisi and Asma al-Murabat um, are representative of two key moments in the history of Islamic feminism as a theological and intellectual project, not necessarily as a grassroots project. We don't have an Islamic feminist movement. By Islamic feminism here, I mean theological project that engages the text. So when we talk about Morocco, we talk about three main trajectories. We talk about the liberal um, trajectory that is heavily grassroots, and this is what we've been talking about in terms of their activism that led to several reforms. But when I say liberal, I also um, mean that it recognizes religion as an important paradigm in Moroccan society. There's also um, the activism that's been carried by women within Islamist movements since the 70s until the present day, which actually has gone grassroots and has has had a significant impact over society. And it uses the religious argument, although we can debate how feminist their activism is, but it has created an impact on society. The third trajectory is, of course, state-promoted religiously inspired activism that's also gone grassroots, but there's also debate on how feminist that is. So I think understanding the nuances of the Islamic feminist project helps us understand that this particular expression that we're talking about is rather theological. And it's, um, it's as you said, a few people um, talking in elitist circles without necessarily having a great impact on society. I say thank you so much for that clarification. I think it is very, very important the way you created these typologies for uh, many people to understand. 
So I would like them to bring to that conversation one of these three paradigms, if you will, or three groups. Uh, so I want to ask you about Nadia Yassin, and maybe Islam is Sufi-oriented. I don't know if you can call them feminists, but at least women scholars who are, at, to some extent, sensitive and attentive to, to women's rights. So can you tell us more about this particular group? Um, so uh, I would just quickly want to make a distinction between Islamist and Sufi. So although Al-Adl al-Ihsan um, believes in and combining spiritual practice with political activism, but as a category in the context of Morocco, um, these are when we talk about Islamism and Sufism, these are um, two different paradigms with different um, dynamics. Um, so, of course, Nadia Yassin is an important figure of, um, of, again, whether we can call her activism feminist or not, but she figures as one of the movement's main, um, main figures and outspoken um, critic of the Moroccan states, particularly the, the monarchy. So, of course, she was the early figures to um, establish a women's section within her, her movement, which generated a new pattern in Moroccan feminist consciousness or female-led activism and initiated public discussions on the role of women within religion and public life. And she actually advocated the importance of reviving ijtihad and the importance of integrating women in the process. So she, she, she combined um, political engagement with the importance of theological engagement, which has contributed to the movement going significantly um, grassroots. So although we can make the case that um, Nadia Yassin's feminism functions within a, an Islamist traditional hierarchical structure, um, which can question the possibility and impact of her quote-unquote feminism. That said, I, I believe that Yassin holds a very interesting perspective and contributed to shaping the discourse on religiously inspired feminism or activism. She, for example, holds that the forms of oppression that demarcated Islamic history are a consequence of the establishment of a hereditary political system under the Umayyads, which subsequently led to the establishment of despotic governments and dictatorships in the Muslim world. So she believes that the oppressive constructions of gender in post-colonial Muslim societies are closely related to the authoritarianism of the ruling regimes. In other words, democratic forms of governance for her are the only um, way around. Interestingly enough, she also considers the Maliki Madhab a masculine law and a major hindrance to women's emancipation, especially in its linkage to the regime, which she describes as autocratic and um, therefore patriarchal. Also, um, Nadia was among the Islamist figures who rallied in 2000 against the reforms leading to the Mudawana on the grounds that, um, that those rights are determined by Western ideals and there's a possibility to define women's rights from within Islamic law. However, Yassin claims um, to have fully supported the reform of the Mudawana, but she was particularly critical of the state's appropriation of the reform. So she claims to be the first female voice to break the taboo and make public the statement about the Mudawana not being the, a sacred text and that it should be criticized. And um, for her, calling the Mudawana into question meant calling into question the sacred nature of the political system 
as well that establishes its legitimacy um, based on a particular reading of Islam. So she she subsequently considers the Mudawana to be a product of a despotic political practice that promotes the interests of a privileged few, which is um which is which is a very interesting perspective. And for me it's brave because um, not many women were able to do that because generally this the feminist movement in Morocco is aligned with um state policies. So so um she of course was uh, was one of the few women with that kind of critical engagement vis-a-vis state policies, but her ideas didn't go mainstream because of the political exclusion that she experienced as being a member of an oppositional and um, banned group. Yeah, that is absolutely amazing. And I'm sure that our listeners will now know why Morocco is such an important site for contemporary Islamic thought in all its varieties and why it should be recentered in our understanding and study of Islamic thought in general. Uh, as a way of conclusion, Mariam, can you tell us maybe a couple of minutes about your own work? What is your research on? What are you currently working on? Yeah, so, um, so of course, since my doctoral research, my research has examined the, differ- the diverse articulations of Islamic feminism in post-2000 Morocco based on the observation that while articulations of Islamic feminism have been supported by the state or male-dominated religious establishment, um, they also are to be read in a specific um in a specific context of uh, women's um, long-standing activism and um, and agency, so my research traces the emergence and contours of these newly gained spaces for women in the fields of activism, religious and uh, spiritual leadership and knowledge production, um, etc. So. Um, um, my most recent research is, uh, explores the search of uh, new spiritualities in Morocco. So I'm exploring the growing yoga circles in Morocco and the role of women in shaping new expressions of female and gender su- subjectivity that is growing outside of institutional Islam, which is a very interesting new dynamic. So the emerging new non-institutionalized spiritual spaces are, of course, marked by the significant involvement of women as participants and leaders and blurs the boundaries of gendered spirituality informed by collective and normative readings of Islam. Which is also what also uh, what is also significant about those spaces is that they privilege the centrality of individual experience over um, hierarchical praxis, which serves, for me, serves as some form of a um, social critique to mainstream or normative imaginations associated with what Islam is, and thus offer like a diverse expression of religion and um, spirituality. So I'm very fascinated with that development in, um, in, in, uh, in female religious and spiritual expression in Morocco. That sounds very exciting, and we're looking forward to reading your research once you get it published. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elhaythami. That was Dr. Maryam Elhaythami. She's an assistant professor at the International University of Rabat in Morocco. Thank you once again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here.